Good evening. I'm happy, excited to be back with you. It's an interesting morning to go preach at another church. Um, but I am thankful to be back where I rightfully and God's providence belong. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to Haggai chapter 2. We'll be closing out this prophetic ministry of Haggai with his fourth oracle. Uh, this evening, as we'll consider verses 20 through 23, but essentially we're not really moving forward very far in uh, the history of God's people as next week we'll pick up with Zechariah and Malachi, all of these prophets prophesying during the return of the Babylonian, or return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile. Tonight we're going to look at the signet ring king from these verses. Let us open with a word of prayer. And then we'll give a consideration to the text before us. God in heaven, we do thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, for your faithfulness, not only to us, but God, to yourself. God, as we see in these verses, one of the most comforting realities in our life is the fact that you continue to remain faithful to your word, your promises, and your character, and your nature. God, we thank you for that reality. God, we thank you that we can have comfort that our God does not change. God, that you are the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation of change. And so, Lord, we praise your name for your immutability this evening. God, we ask that you would help us now as we give consideration to your word. God, we thank you for it, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in this very special way through your word. God, that you have preserved it for us through desert storms and rains that we can have it today. God, that you can mold us and shape us and lead us and guide us. God, that we don't have to fabricate in our imaginations how it is that we approach you. God, how it is that we are to be redeemed by you. But the Lord, you have given us those things um, to us in your word. So, God, we thank you for it. God, we know that as men, we do not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Father, we thank you that that also includes these before us this evening. So, God, by the power of your Spirit, help us uh, to discern, to rightly divide uh, these verses this evening. Guys, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Haggai 20, or 2, verses 20 through 23. The word of God reads, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth, and to throw the throne of kingdoms, to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and to overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let me begin by just asking you a question. Do you ever look out upon the landscape of creation and think to yourself, like, God, are, are you really even out there? Do you ever look at the chaos that is this world and think to yourself, God, are you really in control of all of this? Are you really sovereign over the insanity that is this world? 
As you see all around you, confusion and stupidity abounding willfully in the lives of people. Do you ever stop and think to yourself, like, like God, are you truly providential over all of this chaos? Are you really governing these things? I mean, as you look at your own life, your own circumstances, your own challenges, the difficulties that you're facing even today, do you ever question God with his sovereignty and care over his creation? Oftentimes when I present the God of the deist in an apologetic argument, I present him as the, the watchmaker God who has simply created creation and wound a watch and simply has stepped back and watches it implode upon itself. And I use that language because sometimes within me, as I look at creation, it almost feels like that's what's happening. That that this creation that God has created just seems as if it is imploding upon itself. That creation is out of control. We live in a time of civil unrest and social and political division, war and corruption and drugs and crime. Sinfulness and rebellion abounds all around us. The world that we live in does, at times, maybe even for me, at most times, feel uncertain. Sin has necessarily caused it to feel this way. But what we need to know is this is nothing new. As I was giving consideration to this, I was thinking of our first parents in the garden, the communion that they have with God. And then they sin and rebel against him. And by the time we get to chapter 4, I just wonder what it was like for Adam and Eve as their son Cain raised up and slaughtered his brother Abel. I wonder how certain they felt about the future of God's plans. I wonder how in the midst of seeing Abel's blood shed on the ground, they felt how how sovereign God was over his promise to them in Genesis 3.15. You see, sin causes the world to feel somewhat uncertain. The condition of the world in which the church exists today is extremely discouraging to me. Oftentimes, the very condition of the church itself is extremely discouraging to me. The chaos and confusion that abounds within what is called the church today blows my mind. Aaron just prayed that God blows our mind. Well, sometimes the church itself blows my mind. I'm extremely thankful for these verses. When I give consideration to the things that we've spoken about. I'm grateful to God that when I may, in my sin, look out upon creation and feel as if all is lost and God is not in control. And I begin to maybe even question if my God is truly omnipotent. Maybe begin to question if my God is truly omniscient, if he's truly sovereign, if he's truly providential, if he's truly in control of the chaos around me. I'm thankful that I can go to verses like this that we have in Haggai this evening and see that not only is my God indeed in control of everything around me that seems out of control, but he always has been. God has been sovereignly controlling and providentially governing his creation since the very beginning. And he is still doing that today. These verses were intended to comfort the people of Israel. To encourage the people of Israel to persevere in the faith. And I believe they do the same thing for us today. These verses declare boldly that our God is indeed sovereign. That our God is indeed in control. That he is indeed providentially working to bring about his intended purposes in the world. 
As we come to these last few verses in this final oracle of the prophet Haggai, the people of Judah are essentially in a bad place. Things are not really looking very good for them. They are, by God's grace and mercy and providence, back from Babylonian exile. They've repented of their complacency in building the temple. They've repented of their disobedience. They've committed themselves to get back to work on the temple, which we saw. That's great. That's wonderful. Yet here's this small group of people that's trying to build this temple for their God while under severe persecution and opposition. They exist under the control of the Persian authorities. They are, if you consider the, the global spectrum of nations, absolutely irrelevant. Like, they're not even a blip on the map. They have no army, they have no political power, they have absolutely nothing. John Courage said of the people of God in Haggai's day that they amount to this little, puny, insignificant community who are under economic duress trying to build a puny temple to their God. And I think he hits the nail on the head. Like, that's who these people are. They're this small, puny, weak, insignificant, in the world's eyes, people seeking to build, in the world's eyes and by comparison to the pagan temples, a small, puny little temple to their God, while everything around them is utter chaos in opposition to what they're seeking to do. Their task is daunting. As I thought through these verses this week, I, I thought that their task is scary, in a sense. I would have been fearful to have been in their shoes and do what it is that they're doing. They might have been looking around themselves thinking that this is impossible. Like, okay, God, we're going to get back to work on the temple, but goodness gracious, how in the world will we ever do what it is that you've called us to do? They may be thinking that God was not in control. This fourth and final oracle that comes to, to Zerubbabel from the prophet Haggai comes only to Zerubbabel. As we see in verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. And then we have this time stamp that it came on the 24th day of the month. Now, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 10, we see that on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So this fourth oracle comes on the same day as the third oracle, on the 24th day of the ninth month. And it comes directly to the governor, directly to Zerubbabel. Every other oracle, or the other three, have either gone to all the leaders and then been deciphered down to the people. They've come to all of the people. But this one here is unique in that it's to one man for the benefit of the community, but it's specifically, I think, to encourage Zerubbabel. But this is the second oracle on the same day. Maybe the first one was given in the morning, and this one's been given after lunch or in the evening. Maybe it was done very much like today was, where you guys showed up this morning, and you heard preaching from the Word of God, and you've gone to eat lunch and rest and be with your family, and the words that you heard this morning have been reverberating in your brain as you've been meditating upon and giving consideration to what it is that the man of God has spoken from the Word of God to your hearts and to your minds and to your souls this morning. And maybe Zerubbabel has been meditating upon Everything that Haggai has told him in the previous oracle. And then now as the day has gone on, he's been thinking through what God has said. Haggai comes to him with this fourth oracle. Certainly, I think that 
Zerubbabel must have been giving consideration to what Haggai closed with in that third oracle. Those, those last four words that the prophet speaks to the people from God. This, this sovereign promise that, that I will bless you. And maybe Zerubbabel is thinking to himself, like, God, I, I hear you. God, I, I hope that you will. But I just don't understand how in the world it is that you are going to bring this blessing about. Well, God gives this oracle to Zerubbabel to comfort him and to encourage his people to press on in the face of adversity. And God does this by, does this by first causing them to look back at his faithfulness to himself throughout history and then by causing them to look forward. Look at what God says to Zerubbabel beginning in verse 21. He tells to Haggai, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth speaks of the entire universe. God in his sovereignty is about to take the entirety of the universe in the palm of his hand, like you or I would, a small child's snow globe, and violently shake it with plan and purpose and intention to bring about his will. And when he does this, he's going to do four things. We see very clearly in our text, first, he's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Secondly, he's going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. Thirdly, he's going to overthrow the chariots and their riders, the armies of warfare. Fourthly, he's going to cause everyone to fall by the sword of his own brothers. While this is a future promise to Zerubbabel, he tells him what he's about to do, what he will do. This future promise to him. What he says to him, is it resonates in Zerubbabel's mind. It brings great comfort to him because he's speaking to him in the language that he knows, in the language of the Old Testament. It forces him to recall the reality that this indeed is how my God, his God, has always acted. But there's nothing new that we see here. Here God is telling Zerubbabel, look man, I'm going to keep doing what it is that I have always been doing. And you need to do what it is that I've called you to do and trust in me. And you need to take comfort in the reality that this God who is speaking to Zerubbabel does not change. He's about to do something that he's always done. And that's comforting in the midst of the opposition that they're facing. Give consideration to the fact that God tells him that he's going to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. This same verb is used twice in Genesis 19 to speak of God's overthrowing of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's also used in Deuteronomy 29-23 to speak of God's overthrow of these wicked cities. In the same way that God so easily overthrew the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, God is now telling Zerubbabel that I am going to overthrow the nations. The destroying the strength of the kingdom of the nations was used of God's destruction of the Canaanite cities, such as Jericho, during the conquest under Joshua. The overthrowing of the chariots and their riders speaks to Exodus 15 of what God did when he brought his people out of Egyptian the ex, or, not, uh, sorry, Egyptian captivity. You can turn your Bibles back to Exodus 15, and you can see in the Song of Moses, Moses gives consideration to the faithfulness of God to overthrow these chariots and their riders. 
your, your Bible's turning, but in Exodus 15, we begin in verse 4, if you will. This song of Moses, he's declaring this of God's sovereignty. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The floods took up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the storm, the spoil. My, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. When Haggai comes to Zerubbabel with this reminder that God has and is about to once again overthrow the chariots, this song of Moses would have resonated in his mind and he would have found comfort in the sovereignty of this God. And fourthly, he's going to cause everyone to fall by the sword of his own brothers. We've seen this throughout the Old Testament as well. Think namely of, of Gideon in Judges chapter 7 when he conquers the Midianites. God causes them to turn each on each other, each one taking their sword and essentially slaying his own brother. We read of it in Judges 7.22. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord calls the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. You see, God is telling Zerubbabel through Haggai that I am indeed in control of absolutely everything. What wonderful encouragement that God is giving to him. God is telling him that I have acted in the past and I will act again. That every power that sets itself against me will be utterly destroyed. I think of Psalm 2, where the psalmist writes, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. Essentially, that's what you see taking place here. The nations may rage, the nations may plot, but it's all in vain. God is sitting on his throne laughing at what they are attempting to do against his people and his purposes. So these words comfort Zerubbabel and encourage him to persevere in the task at hand because God is promising a future to his people. This also forces us towards the future as well. We must give consideration as to what this shaking means and when does this shaking take place? When does it happen? The language of God shaking the heavens and the earth speaks to his establishing his rule and defeating his enemies. We see this language throughout the Bible of God shaking the earth. What God is doing in those moments is that he's establishing his rule 
establishing his kingdom, and he is defeating his enemies. The language of God shaking is something that we need to give consideration to. At Mount Sinai, after the Exodus, the mountain shakes as God establishes his kingdom and after he has defeated his enemies. But when does this shaking take place? Haggai's come to Zerubbabel and told him that God has said, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Saying essentially that I am about to destroy my enemies. I am about to establish my rule. But we can look at history. We've seen some of this take place already. We see that right now the people of God are under the rule or authority, if you will, of the Persians. Well, God took the Persians under Cyrus and raised them up to defeat the Babylonians. We've seen this take place throughout history as then the Greeks raise up and defeat the Persians and then the Romans raise up and defeat the Greeks and then we've seen Rome fall. What we begin to see is throughout history as we read our Bibles and as we study world history that nations are judged in history. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy isn't seen by the people of God ultimately until Matthew 27, 51. As the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ is hanging on a cross in between heaven and earth as if he belongs to neither, bearing the wrath of God for our sins. In that moment that the Christ, the Son of God, dies on the cross for our sins, we read, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. In the moment that our Lord and Savior died on the cross to atone for our sins, God shakes the earth. And in that moment, God declares in Christ victory over his enemies. What Satan thought he had used for victory, God has instead used to declare victory over even him. In Colossians 2.15, Paul writes that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Triumphing over the enemies of God in Christ Jesus. In the cross of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ, God has defeated both sin and death and Satan and the work of Jesus Christ. Now we might think to ourselves that Satan may not be fully defeated. But he is. There has been this utter and decisive defeat of Satan in Christ on the cross. I often think of Satan very much like the Black Knight in Monty Python. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that scene or not, but I find it to be hilarious as I give consideration to the fact that, that God has defeated Satan so utterly and so de- de- decisively. In this scene, you have this black knight who's seeking to fight against the white knight. And the white knight comes to him and, and chops his arm off and thinks he's declared victory. And he's like, it's his but a scratch. And so he comes back with the sword and just his one hand, he's fighting against him again and chops his other arm off. And he's like, declares victory. And the black knight keeps fighting back. He's like, God, it's just a flesh wound. And so he's like just bumping into him, if you will. And so the white knight chops his leg off. And then he's just like leaning on him, bleeding on him. And the white knight chops his other leg off. And then he is leaving, and and you see this black knight with no arms and no legs still roaring against the white knight seeking to fight him. And I always watch that scene and think that that's the reality of what Satan is like now. 
He has been utterly and decisively defeated by God through Christ. Yet he is still, as Peter tells us, roaming around, roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he has no power. He has no authority. He is just flailing around on the ground, yelling and screaming, seeking to scare people. But he has the power to send no one to hell. Christ has declared victory over Satan. But even still, even with this shaking at the cross of Christ, there is yet still another shaking to come. A final shaking, where God will once and for all destroy all of his enemies. And where he will once and for all and eternally establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. We read about it in 2 Peter 3, where Peter speaks of all of this being dissolved and burned. We read about it in Revelation 16, as we see this final defeat of Satan and the throwing of him into the eternal lake of fire. We read about it in Hebrews 12, 25 through 29, where we read from the author of Hebrews, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Speaking of the Sinai time. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews is speaking to this final, end times, eschatological shaking, where God will indeed pick up creation in the palm of his hand, and he will utterly and violently shake it to the point where nothing remains except for his kingdom. Everything else will be overthrown and destroyed except for the kingdom of God. And the calls, the, the calling out in Hebrews is that we would praise God that we as believers in Christ have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That will withstand the violent eschatological shaking of God by which he will destroy everything else that stands against him and in opposition to him. Take comfort, weary Christians. The day is coming where justice will have its way, where final victory will finally be declared, where God will finally establish his kingdom forever. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. So yes, God says to Zerubbabel, get to work. Be comforted, for I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. God is telling him, I still reign just as I always have. And these words are comforting to, to our souls today. All of the chaos, all of the insanity, all of the confusion that abounds. God has not forsaken us. He is about to shake the earth for the final time. Let us persevere knowing that God is in control of everything. But he's not done in these verses, both comforting Zerubbabel and proving his sovereignty. God is declaring that his people and his kingdom shall indeed remain forever. Finally, in verse 23, we have this language of the signet ring. Haggai continues speaking to 
the governor on this day. He says, on that day. On that day, he shakes the heavens and the earth. The Lord of hosts will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. The son of Shealtiel declares the Lord. And make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. We have this image of the signet ring. This ring that was extreme value in this day. Where the king would wear it either on his right hand or maybe even on a cord around his neck. And on this ring was the symbol of the king. This ring expressed the authority of the king. And anything that he stamped with this ring came with the seal of the king, the promise of the king, that that these things will definitely be done because it's come from the king. And now here we see that the Lord declares that Zerubbabel will be made to be like a signet ring for he is a servant of whom God has chosen. Now this is significant here for at least two reasons. First, God here is declaring his reestablishment of blessing to the Davidic line. We have to understand that in this time, things are not only bleak for the people of Israel. Their relationship with God has been strained immensely. I mean, after all, he has raised up the Assyrians to utterly destroy Israel in the northern ten kingdoms to which they never come back from. Following that, he raises up the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar to utterly destroy the southern kingdom. And they've been in exile for some 70 years. Their relationship with God is strained immensely. In one sense, they might even not know where they stand with God as far as their relationship with Him goes. Let me try to explain this for you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 22, 24 through 27. You see to unfold kind of an understanding of this signet ring here. Here we have this prophecy of Jeremiah coming to the king of Judah. Coming to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. This is prior to Babylonian captivity. He says in verse 24, As I live, declares the Lord, through Coniah, the son of Joachim, king of Judah, where the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear it off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, they shall not return. Coniah, in these verses, is who we know as King Jehoiachin. He was the last of the kings of Judah. Things were so wicked and vile under him that God here is prophesying the utter destruction of this kingdom at the hand of the Babylonians. That he is going to throw them into this foreign land. They will long and yearn to come back, but they won't be able to. He's going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to utterly destroy them. But beyond that, God says that if Jehoiakim were a signet ring upon my finger, I would rip him off and hurl him away. That if he, 
or the symbol of the ring on my finger, that if he or the symbol of myself on earth, I would throw him away. And this is what happens. God does this thing. He gives them up to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and utterly destroys them and throws off, if you will, or takes off and sets aside the signet ring. The kingly line is destroyed. God has cast off the signet ring. And now we need to note that the main character in our text this evening, this Zerubbabel, is the grandson of Jehoiakim. And that Jehoiakim is in the lineage of King David. So what has happened in Jeremiah here is that God has seemingly cast off from his finger the lineage of David. This was all the hope that the Israelites had. That God was going to bring forth this Messiah, this Savior from the kingly lineage of David. Yet two generations ago, God took off from his finger the signet ring and cast it aside. Their hope and the future is all but lost. For whole two generations, the people of God have wondered, what in the world will our future hold? And so now when God tells Zerubbabel that he is now the signet ring of God, it means that God is now finally restoring, if you will, the line of David. That he is reestablishing the promise of blessing to the Davidic line. God is restoring the line of David through Zerubbabel. David, his kingship, his lineage is now being restored. Not only is God proving his sovereignty as a means to comfort them, God is giving them a future hope. That this Messiah is coming. I have plans for you, declares the Lord. In one sense, the image of God the image on his signet ring is indeed Zerubbabel. There's now hope, encouraging hope, in the sovereign plan of God. He is finally, after two whole generations, after 70 years in exile, he's finally reestablished his covenant faithful promises to the lineage of David. What an encouragement that he gives to them to persevere in the faith. But secondly, we must realize that this was not ultimately fulfilled in Zerubbabel. There's no evidence anywhere that Zerubbabel ever became a king. He certainly could in no possible way become the complete fulfillment of this signet ring king that seems to be spoken of in these verses. But he certainly pointed to one. Here he's called his servant. Here Zerubbabel is called the chosen one of God. Titles that are clearly pointing us to the reality and fulfillment of Jesus Christ and who this promise is being made about. But what is beautiful here is that as you close your Old Testaments and as you open your New Testaments and you come into the first account of the Gospel and the New Testament, you're giving this genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I don't have time or desire to read all the way through it, but if you can pick up with me at verse 12. Matthew chapter 1, you read, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abu. And if you just come down to verse 16, as you continue this lineage of Christ, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. 
Ultimately, the promise of the signet ring was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has declared that Zerubbabel will be his signet ring. And he falls in line in this lineage of Christ where God's keeping his promise to the Davidic line that he's reestablished through Zerubbabel to make Christ the signet ring king. That promise is finally, fully realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was Christ who perfectly fulfilled the title chosen one, who perfectly fulfilled the title servant. And at the cross, we saw the image by which God will be known. If you want to know, I guess, if you will, what the image of God's signet ring would be, it would be the cross of Jesus Christ, where we perfectly see the mercy, grace, and judgment of God as he established his kingdom and his kingdom. And he declared Jesus Christ to be his signet ring of king. God has indeed placed down in history his marker by which he will be known. The entirety of history is pointing forward to the cross of Christ or looking back at the cross of Christ. Where God shook the heavens and the earth as Christ hung in between them. What God has done in Christ as he has stamped the seal of his covenant in the blood of Christ with his signet ring. And the day is coming when he will shake the heavens and the earth once more, and he will forever establish his signet ring king on the throne of David. So yes, when I look out at the landscape of creation, and in my sin I become prone to question if my God is even in control at all, Man, I can come back to, to Haggai. I can come back to Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi and see how faithful my God has been throughout creation to bring about this Christ and how faithful he will continue to be. I see in these verses that my God's plans have never failed. His promises have never been broken. What he intends to do in his will has never once been thwarted by the enemy. Let this passage spur us on to persevere in faith, trusting in our God and waiting for his final shaking of heaven and earth. Let us pray. God in heaven, we do thank you for your sovereignty, for your grace, and for your mercy. God, we thank you that in the midst of the chaos that is this world, God, that for one, it's not new, but for two, that you are indeed absolutely sovereignly in control. God, help us in the midst of our seasons of doubt and temptations to question if you really are who the word of God says you are, to, to go to Scripture and to see a clear picture of your sovereignty and your providence and know that you are doing everything, God, to bring about your intended plan and purpose. God, help us to pursue after holiness and by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh as we wait for this final shaking. Lord, help us to know that you have a need in Christ on his cross, Lord, declared victory and established your kingdom in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.